When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Iranians honestly are some of the most hospitable people in the whole world. Just being in the streets and the hospitality of strangers and the kindness. There's just a culture. I honestly wish I could explain it. And even when I was there, I couldn't explain it. There's like a smell, a vibrancy, a feeling of being in the markets and in the streets. Everything is always a family gathering. It's always tons of food and dancing and tons of people. And so just that sense of community and vibrancy is really what I miss. Hi, my name is Goli Kalkaran and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to our friend Goli, the host of Lessons from a Twitter, a really, really awesome podcast you guys need to go check out. Sharon, what'd you think about Goli? I thought she was awesome, but what I think is really awesome is the name of her podcast. That's great. And you were on her show recently too, right, Raman? Yeah, it was easy to share tidbits of who we are on our show through conversation with someone else. Like you're here to listen to Goli, not, and you kind of like Sharon and me, but... <laughs> As we've been starting to be asked to show up on other people's shows, it's really weird talking about myself for an hour. And you should definitely go check her show out. You can totally ignore my episode. I guess if you want to hear about me and my career journey. Yeah, like in two seconds, what did you talk about on the episode? I'll have to go listen. What are your lessons as a quitter, huh, quitter? I want to know. Uh, (laughs) The one thing, spoiler alert, I told her anyone who tells you they figured it out is completely lying. Like no one has this shit figured out. Um, And the only way you can figure it out for yourself is to just keep trying. And that's what she's gotten really good at. She's a running American, came over as a kid, all the pressure in the world to become a lawyer. I think she was like a federal prosecutor, which is insanely cool. I know. And she got into the job and she didn't like it. Yeah. And that is one of those moments in life where I feel like people make a decision at that point and that decision can impact so many things coming out of that, right? So it's like you make a decision and you either think, I'm going to keep going because I've been working on this for the last 10 years of my life or more, or I've always dreamt of doing this and I'm going to stick to it, or I'm going to come to the realization that this just is not my truth and I'm meant to do something else or my passion lies elsewhere. And she made that really brave choice at the age of 32, I think it was. And she talks about that moment when she had to tell her parents and how difficult that was. And I think that's something that I definitely could totally relate to. I mean, I'm 41 and I feel like every time I have to call my parents about something that I've done that might not be perfect, or if I just feel like I've got to break some bad news to them, I still get that same sense of anxiety as I did as a kid. 
having to disappoint them in some way. Yeah. And I, throughout the conversation, it's so obvious the connection to her family, be it her mom and her dad and their story and the decisions they had to make or her husband and some of the things he said that he maybe shouldn't have said. <laughs> you got to listen for that point. But even like as we, were, we got into a bit of a discussion of like, well, what behaviors are we going to model for our kids? So either they don't fall into the same path or traps that we did as grownups or even how they'll be equipped to kind of make these sort of decisions. So I really love the way she thinks about things in this kind of more contextual, holistic manner, but that's really inwardly driven and focused. Yeah. I just found that she was just such an inspiration. And I think she also, like us, I mean, it's clear that she's learned a lot of lessons from her own guests on her podcast. And so this practice of interviewing people, getting to know them, and then incorporating a lot of that into her life philosophy too came out in a lot of the stories that she was telling. Yeah, this is totally free therapy. That's the only reason I do this show, Sharon. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you're going to really enjoy our conversation with our friend Goli. Goli, welcome to the pod. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Goli. It's great to have you here today. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you've got your own podcast. A lot of people have heard your voice pretty frequently. But Mm -hmm. what I would love to hear is before you were a lawyer, before you quit being a lawyer, before you started <laughs> podcasting, who was young goalie? Can you tell us a story from your childhood? Oh, yeah. I I think like, I don't know, actually, if, if like a lot of minorities, I, I immigrated to the US at when I was five. And I think like young goalie was just always a rule follower, like through and through. I was just the kid that listened, the kid that did what she was told, the kid that always, I don't know, annoying kid that was always good. Like I never got in trouble. I never did anything wrong. I like, I don't, I don't even know why I think about it a lot now because I have two children and part of like the cautiousness that the way I was a very cautious child, I just wasn't a risk taker. I wasn't a rule breaker. I didn't like going against the grain. I just liked things to be calm and both of my children are like that. So I don't know if it's like a genetic thing or if it's a nature versus nurture, but I was a pretty happy-go-lucky kid that just followed the rules. So I guess that means you've always been the perfect child. Yeah, from, <laughs> from when I was born, pretty much. You're making it harder for the rest of us <laughs> from a young age. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's, I look back, it's interesting because of my journey and how I went on the exact model path and like really just did everything right. And I look back and I don't know if it's such a good thing. And I actually, it's funny because obviously it's easier for me that my kids are listeners and they do the right thing. But because of my own history, it sort of not makes me sad, but I worry for them because I look back and I see the like need to constantly be liked or to constantly to not be in trouble, to never do something that ruffles the feathers. And that didn't actually, it served me in this like traditional quote unquote success sense from an outside perspective. But it definitely didn't serve me in the sense of like figuring out who I truly am, which I feel like I'm doing now in my 30s when I'm not trying to please everybody, when I'm not trying to be this perfect person that doesn't exist. Who am I? Like what would I do if I wasn't so afraid of rocking the boat? So you talked about you came over when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. Where'd you come over from? (laughs) I am originally from Iran. I was born in Iran and my parents immigrated. They actually immigrated twice, which was really interesting. They were in America and they went back during the revolution in Iran in the, in 
the late seventies. So my sister was actually who's older. Wait, can you back up? That's yeah. nuts. People yeah. who all the Iranians I know who left <laughs> yeah. they didn't go back. Why'd they go back? Right. Which is I think it's actually a really interesting perspective for me. It's really changed the way I look at a lot of revolutions and even in in the US, like politics. So my parents were always like upper middle class and they came here for school for my dad was getting a master's. My mom was in college in the U.S. in the 70s. And but they always I mean, there's there's so much to go back on, on like the politics of Iran and the Shah and how a lot of people felt like he was a puppet of the West. And there was so much inequality and the gap between rich and poor was becoming a lot bigger. And even though my parents were on the side of the haves and not the have-nots. They were against this fundamental unfairness. And when the revolution happened, there was never, like what's interesting hearing their perspective is that it was never an Islamic revolution. Like it, it, they didn't present it as like an Islamic revolution, right? And so none, nobody was for this very restrictive religious government to come into place. The entire revolution was about basically taking taking out the, the puppet that was for the West so that Iran would use its resources for its own people and so that there would be more equality and so that there would be domestic policies that helped the very people of Iran. And so my parents felt very strongly about that and they felt like they had to be a part of that. And I talk a lot to my parents about how in the, originally when it was like the protest, like my mom mentions a story how towards after the revolution picked up steam and they when they were originally like they were protesting and everybody was protesting together and and like she remembers like one time like as protest as the revolution evolved where they started like splitting up men and women and they started saying like men can't and she was like wow we, we kept thinking like what are you talking about what do you mean men and women can't be together and she was like no, nobody ever thought that it would turn into this and so they went in, they went back because they wanted to be a part of a progressive change to take out the Shah and put in more of a democratic and equitable power. And I think when there's a vacuum in power, oftentimes it doesn't turn the way that you think it will. And they very quickly realized that what was coming wasn't what they'd expected. So is that why they left and emigrated back? Oh, no, so, so they were there. They ended up staying for about five years. The revolution finished, but then the Iran-Iraq war started. And it was in the middle of the Iran-Iraq war that they left. And so how old were you the second time when they left? I was four when they left. Okay. It was in like 1986. I was four when they left, but we went to through Germany. We were in Germany for a while. And so I was five when I came to the U.S. I, you know, it's so interesting. Like so many... There's different immigrant stories in this country, but some of it is, oh, we came over, either I was born there or I was born here. And usually it's, oh, we go back in the summer. Or in yeah. the case of maybe me and Sharon, we never go back. Yeah. But to go back multiple times and have this ongoing relationship, because then later on in life, you were telling me that you've gone back frequently since you were 18 or you used yeah. to go back? Yes. Yeah, it's become less, especially after I had children, because yeah. I just I can't make it as much with work and stuff. But yeah, I, I was going to say you can't make it on a plane with a kid. Yeah, like, that's yeah. What I mean, do. Well, it's like a 24 hour trip. And like the time to do you, you can only go if you're like willing, really, you have to go for like a month. 
And so yeah. sometimes it's hard to carve out a month from work, especially in the US, to take off that much time. So it's just made it more difficult since my children are young. But yeah, I I didn't go back until I was 18. And that was more of a function of just economics. Like we just couldn't really afford to fly back to Iran and I mean, and other immigration stuff. And so it had been a really long time since I went back and I actually went back. I was going on a trip to Europe after I graduated high school with my cousin and my aunt and my parents, my aunt at the time in Iran was very ill and she wasn't going to survive much longer. And so my, it was my father's sister he really wanted me to go back and see her and have her see me. And so they were thinking like, we're already in Europe. It's only like a six hour flight from where I was in, in Germany. And so they were like, just go to Iran and see, go spend a couple of weeks. But you can imagine like I was alone. So I didn't go with, I didn't go with my parents. I didn't go with aunt, like my aunt and cousin were staying in Europe and I was going to go by myself. And even though I come from an Iranian family and an Iranian community. And so it's not as though I only have the Western images of Iran. Like I understand the other side. And I had tons of family that would go back and forth. I had my grandma would constantly come visit. So it wasn't that I, I only saw like the, the very skewed way that Iran is portrayed in the media here, but still because I had never been there and because I was exposed to so much of the negative portrayals of Iran by Western media, I think just the implicit bias that I had developed, I was terrified to go back. I mean, I was hysterically crying, like begging my parents not to like make me go. And they were like, you don't, we're not making you, but it's not as serious as you're making it. Like, it's fine. You have so much cousins, you have so much family, people will take care of you. It's, it's not as like, you're making this a little too dramatic. And I think because they obviously were from there, so they didn't understand why I was having such a visceral, I think, reaction And anyways, I pushed through and I went and I absolutely fell in love with the country and the people and my family. And I started going back like every summer and I started going back as frequently as I could and I would stay as long as I could. And things changed with, like I said, when I started going to law school and I just didn't have as much time and then I got married and I have kids. And so now it's become obviously much less frequent. But yeah, I, I ended up finding a much different reality in Iran than I had been taught. And I absolutely love it there. Uh, can I, is it safe to assume that you're Muslim and you're a Shia Muslim? Because that's most of Iran, right? Y- yes. My family doesn't really practice. So we're not like, I wouldn't, I don't, I personally don't identify as Muslim because I yeah, yeah, okay, okay. practice a religion. Were you, were you, but yes, yeah. my family is, yes, I'm, uh, my family, both sides of my family would identify as Shiite Muslims. Because I was going to ask, like, what? how did you thread that needle? Like being not so orthodox, but going mm-hmm. back, like how is that perceived? And again, these are my ignorant questions. Like, Yeah, no, no, no my, worries. Minus yeah, the news of watching Jason Jones go, go to yeah, Iran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Know, watching Rosewater. Mm-hmm. I don't know much about Iran. Totally. No, I think it's a valid question. Again, because my family, so, and, and it's interesting you ask, because like you said, everybody has a different, everybody has a different experience. And so I have friends whose families are very religious who don't enjoy going back as much because if they're not religious, it's a little bit, I think, more difficult. Like it's not, I don't know, maybe it's not as fun. My family isn't religious. And so it was strange for me in the sense of like having to cover up and having to adhere to those 
like rules. That's what I was mostly scared of actually was being in this Islamic regime and and having not knowing how to interact with that. Like I'd never been in that. So knowing like I was scared that like I wasn't going to be covered up right and like the police are going to come get me or whatever ridiculous things that I had thought. But I wasn't so scared about like in my family's homes or being with my family because I knew I know how my parents are. And so I knew that like they were very much like my parents. And so I didn't think that I needed to thread that needle in any way privately. But I definitely had those concerns. Like the same thing you were saying. Again, like I've only I'd only experienced things that I saw on TV. So I thought it was going to be a very I guess it's, and I'm sure that right now this is still some of my ignorant views of like Saudi Arabia, but I I thought it was going to be more like that. Like I would go and women are completely covered from head to toe and like not allowed to speak and that stuff. And it's wildly, wildly different than what I imagined. What, since you haven't been back for a while, what's something you miss? I mean, I miss the people and the food always the most, even though we, I get a ton of Persian food here. It's just different. There's just a culture, like the streets there. I can't, I honestly wish I could explain it. And even when I was there, I couldn't explain it. There's like a smell. There is a vibrancy. There is a feeling of being in the markets and in the streets. There is the Iranians in my mind, honestly, are some of the most hospitable people in the whole world. And so just being in the streets and like, the hospitality of strangers and the kindness. And like I said, like the, everything is always a family gathering. It's always tons of food and dancing and tons of people. And so just that sense of community and that vibrancy is really what I miss. Yeah. Iran's long been on my list because I backpacked Mm. around more than a few countries in the Middle East and that I'm not, it's not to say other countries don't have this hospitality, but as an American backpacker in Various parts of uh, just the hospitality thing mm-hmm. really throws you off at first, but it's just it's this really special guest or god sort of mentality. Totally. Being at a restaurant, it's it's amazing. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. I mean, when I went, like this is talk about my own ignorance. I like I was so surprised to see uh, tourists, like Western tourists in Iran. I was like, wait, they come here, like Americans and Japanese people, and and. And seeing how people reacted to them and how, and I think because tourism is not huge, like most people don't travel yeah, to Iran yeah. for tourism, it's so much more special to them. Like they are so intent on making sure tourists have a good time or like are treated yeah. well that they there is a rever- like a reverence. And it's funny because even for me, like I, they could spot that I was not from Iran, like from a mile away, just by the way I dressed or the way I talked. I mean, I clearly, even when I speak Farsi, I have a bit of an accent. But it was interesting to me to see like shops and stuff, like as soon as they would hear or like ask and see that I was from America, like they just started treating me better, which was strange. Even though I was like with my aunt and I was, I'm clearly Iranian, they just, I don't know. Yeah, there's just this reverence for for tourists. Yeah, I've gotten more than more than one free ice cream in the Middle East. <laughs> Roman, yeah, I'm jealous that you got to get free ice cream in the Middle East. That's unfair. I know. Oh, and the ice cream in Iran is so good. So, what did you think you would be when you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, I think this goes back to again saying this this ridiculousness of me following the path. 
And if you guys listen, I don't know if your audience wants to check out more of my story on my podcast, like I have a podcast called Lessons from a Quitter. And I really go into this really in depth because I was one of those kids who just like chose that I was going to be a lawyer at a very young age. Part of that was because like I always like loved, I, I was never that much into science. So I knew like I liked it, but I wasn't, I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't like, that's not ever something I had aspired to. And I loved like courtroom dramas and law and order and all that stuff. But also my grandfather on my mom, my mom's father was a high powered attorney in Iran. And, and he did a lot of like work in front of the Supreme Court in Iran. And so my mom would always talk about him. And I, I don't know if that's what it was, but anyways, I decided at a very young age that I was going to be a lawyer. And I, literally never wavered. I like put my head down and I, every time anybody would ask me, anytime I would consider anything about college or later, it was just like, there was no other choice. Like I'm going to be a lawyer and that's it. And so I just, I didn't have tons of other, like, I want to be a veterinarian and I want to do like, I was going to be a lawyer. Doctor wasn't even an option. Doctor wasn't even an option. Engineer. I never thought about anything else. I was like, law is like, this is what we're doing and we're going to steamroll it until we get there. It's definitely not the typical story, and I feel like now I like take setbacks to consider why I was so gung ho about it, and I I don't really have a great answer for it. But I did love the law. I still find it so fascinating, and I loved like law school. I love learning about it, so I was definitely interested in it. But yeah, I mean, I I think I just like I, I I fell on that path, and for better or worse. I was good at the path. Like I was good at school. I got good grades. And so there was nothing that ever woke me up to like, maybe you should consider something else or maybe you should think about what you actually like. It was like, well, you get praise as you go along and everybody, like teachers and my parents and family, everybody's like telling you you're doing the right thing. And so I never questioned it. But something changed. Like what changed? I started practicing law. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, this is not what I thought I was signing up for. I mean, the reality is that. I think a lot of times, and on my podcast, I talk to people that are quitters. And I like, and I say quitters, like people that started a career and then quit and uh, pivoted to something completely different. And I find this happens a lot, obviously with most of us, is that you don't know what you don't know. And you're going off based off some idealistic like version of whatever you're going after. And I think with school and when you're young, obviously you're guided by what other people are telling you. Plus, like you're so busy just doing the thing, like going to school and trying to get the grades and studying for the SATs or the LSAT or whatever it is, that it's not until you like get there where you like finally figure out what does the day-to-day of this even look like? Like what are the options that I have as a lawyer? And I think it wasn't until I actually became a lawyer that I was like, wow, this is not what I thought I was signing up for. And it quickly became apparent to me that I didn't like the vast majority of it. That must have been a real awakening. So was it easy to quit law because you disliked it so much? Or did you still struggle with making that decision at that point? (laughs) It wasn't easy. Here's the thing. The decision, even for me, wasn't like an instant thing. So it took me almost a year to come to grips with walking away for myself, like to really even convince myself that I was going to do it. Because what happens is you might have a, a, like everyone will know, let's say that they're unhappy. But as soon as you even think 
like, I don't want to do this, or maybe I should do something else. All the thoughts come in, right? Like, that's crazy. You spent so much time and money and energy getting to this. Like, you don't know how to do anything else. You have no other skills. Like, this is what you, like, life isn't just fun and games. Work is hard, whatever. All these, like, program thoughts that we have. And so I wrestled with that for a really long time. I felt really ungrateful. I kept thinking, like, you have this career that so many other people would love. I made really good money. Like, how could you just walk away? And so I really wrestled with a lot of that for a long time before I even brought it up to other people. I talked about it with my husband endlessly, and he was really the godsend that pushed me to make the change. And I think, like, I we, we just went back and forth on, like, discussing aspects of this I would say literally for almost a year. And so by the time I was ready, like I was, I had thought of every side of this coin. I mean, I had thought of everything and I'd worked myself up to the point where I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And so I don't know what the next thing is, but I'm not going to spend the rest of my life being unhappy. And what happened for me that was a, a blessing in disguise that really helped me with my parents is my mom, who was very much of the camp of like, work isn't supposed to be fun and like life is it's just the way it is and you have to just buckle down. What do you, what do your parents do? So my mo- mother was a, an accountant. She she was a VP of accounting at a air freight company and that's what I was saying. So she she was at this one company for 20 years and she worked to work though. Worked to work. Yeah, yeah, and she like did it but but the thing is, is she took so much pride in it and she grew, she was with that company from like a couple of employees to like, it grew to a major company and she had a whole department and she was just a great worker and like loved it. And what ended up happening though, is that the year before I ended up quitting, my mom was laid off like blindsidedly. She had no idea it was coming and she was 60 and she wasn't at a place where she could retire anytime soon. And that really shook her whole world and like the rug was pulled out from under her. And I think she had to question so many of these things that she had accepted as truths of like security and like this American dream and working until, and, and I think it, it just really was like a rude awakening that like nothing is guaranteed and there is no security. And I think she felt not only so robbed and very hurt by the layoff because she had become like she really felt like family with the owner of the business. Like we had become family. And so not only was she hurt on a personal level, but she was in this place where she was like, no one's going to hire a 60 year old as an accountant. Like there's a 35 year old that they could hire. And even though that might not be legal, people are doing it. Right. And so it really forced her to reexamine everything. And so when I came a year later and said, and she ended up, her and my father ended up opening up a business with my sister. And that's, it's honestly been the best thing that could have ever happened to any of them. And so it was really great. But that's when I think it forced her to shift in thinking. And so when I decided that I didn't want to be a lawyer, she was all on board because she was like, yeah, don't waste your time working for somebody else or building something that you don't like. Because yeah, which was like, I, I mean, it was so mind blowing to me that she because I really thought that she was going to be the one that was going to try to talk me out of it. But both my parents How were actually old were very you supportive. When you told mom and dad, I was. I'm trying to think. Okay. Uh, 32. Wow. Yeah. And which is funny, and I know saying obviously since we're all minorities, like and like immigrants in this place, like people understand. It's really funny because 
it's funny that you even asked that because like as a 32 yeah. year old, I think for a lot of people, it's hard to understand like that it's hard to tell your parents. And I literally, I had, a, I have a husband, like we have our own finances. It's not like my parents pay for my living or anything in that sense. And yet I was terrified to tell them and I felt like I needed their permission. And I think that's something that's not, doesn't really change. I don't know. I don't know if it's just an immigrant yeah, I don't know experience if it's nature or, or what nurture. It is, like, but- I've had a couple of those moments in my career. And yeah. it's something I strategize and I plan for and mm-hmm. I avoid sometimes for weeks or months on end. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, totally. I remembered when I was younger and some of my American friends, like when I was in college or something, you know, 25 or something, my American friends would be like, well, why do you, because I would be talking about how like, oh, I can't break it. Like I have to, my parents haven't said I could do this yet or something. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're 25. Like, you don't have to say that. And I was like, you don't understand. And now it's funny because I think it's not so much that like, if, even if they were against it, I would have left. Like I wouldn't have stayed in the career. But like you were saying, I it's like you avoid the conversation. Like you so deeply want that blessing or like that support or like you don't want to disappoint them. And I think that is just a culturally ingrained thing. You think that changes with your kids, how you and your husband are raising your kids like 30 years from now? I want to hope so, but I I, I don't know. Because I'm definitely trying to be more conscious of a parent and I'm definitely trying to do things differently where I try to just encourage who they are and let them blossom as to like the person they're going to be. But like in theory, that's great. I don't know if in practice, I feel like so much of this stuff is even like subtle and and them knowing that like whether you're disappointed or not. And we all have this innate need of, of being accepted and being included and like we're tribal beings. And so I'm hoping that we can break some of it. I don't think it's to the extent that it was with our generation, with our parents, but I would be lying if I say like a hundred percent, I just want them to go out and be free and not care about what I think at all. Cause I don't they know. They don't get to be liberal arts majors. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> no, they can be liberal arts majors. I don't mind that. But I just like, it's like as much as I want them to be free, like Obviously, I still think I know best. And I'm like, well, let me help guide you. So do you basically just want them to go to school, a good school? Doesn't matter if they major in liberal arts or not. Oh, of course. I don't even know. I'm, I I haven't made a decision. Luckily, they're young enough. But I, I've gone to the far extreme where like, I don't even know if like, do I even care if they go to college? I don't know, which is like really extreme for uh, our culture. But I think college, the way that it is, in America, especially with the price tag, I don't know, like, would I, would I rather them take a year or two off and use that money and, like, try to go out and travel or build a business or do other things? Maybe. I, again, don't, I mean, I, don't hold me to this because I might feel the same way at that point. I think that I, luckily I have about, like, 15 years before I have to make that <laughs> we're, decision. We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. So, so it's like, I, I'm sure that my thinking will change by that point, too. And I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that there aren't benefits to education and to the degree and to just schooling and even just using that time to grow up a little bit more. Cause it's not like I want them out in the real world at 18, but I think that those are all things that like, I would think more in a more balanced way than just thinking like you have to, because we say you have to, or because this is the thing everybody does. Whereas it's like, I, I mean, I, because I think about this stuff all the time now with my podcast and the people I talk to and I see so many people that have gone on these paths that are so much more fulfilled and successful and has nothing to do with the degree they got. And 
I just I just question like especially with the model like I said in the US with how expensive education is it's something I definitely have to think about more. I think right now if I had to make the decision, I would be the same where it's like it's just falling back on your fears of like it's safer to have a degree so just like go get the degree. But I don't know how. But, but Gully, so I was on your show and we talked a little bit about my story, but I think to be a quitter you have to have something to quit, right? And and I say this in a good yeah. way. I do think and it's funny, explaining my daughter, like the different stages. Now you're a little girl and soon you'll be a big girl yeah. and then you'll be a teenager and then you'll go to college. What does that mean? And when she found out that she would have to move away from us, she's like, I don't want to go to college. Uh-huh. And she keeps saying, like for the last week, she's brought that up. But I do think you have to try and do something, mm-hmm. right? You can't do. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Like if you are going to pivot and I talk to me about like the most of your guests went and got mm-hmm. the job went and got the degree mm-hmm. and then they you have to pivot away from something otherwise it, there is this sacrifice there is this choice that you're making because i think the stuff you've done before informs like if you weren't hadn't been a lawyer at first and it might have sucked but you hadn't done all those things you wouldn't be who you are today like the decision point would have been completely different that's absolutely true and uh, so i in no way actually i don't regret at all going to law school or having the path that I did. I don't know so much if I think that you have to do that. Like if you have to have the thing that you hate in order to and quit and, and, and love. Well, like, you say it that way? Because I'm just saying like I, I do think that if you can cultivate or give yourself more space to – try and fail things yeah. and get to know yourself and not try to just do the like, you know, thing that society wants you to do. I don't know. Could you figure out faster and be more on an aligned path? Now, does that mean you're never going to pivot or make changes or try something and see? Of course not. Like nobody's just picking something and then everything works out beautifully. Like that's not life. But I wonder if for the people that come on my show, yes, every one of them has like tried the traditional way. And I think but I think most of us were just led there because we didn't know what else to do. And it was what was told to us that like we have to do and that is the right thing to do. And so it wasn't a lot of thought of like, I'm going to try this because like then I can change. And that's why I think so many people are still stuck in careers that they hate because it's not as easy to then quit the thing because you're so locked into that identity and what other people are going to say and how do you start over and it's too hard. And sometimes that mental block is so is too difficult to overcome and so people will choose unhappiness over the un- that uncertainty and so they will stay in it and so i don't know if like yeah maybe you can break free of it but maybe you can't so is it the, to say like that you should do it well so I, I wonder if maybe the model as a parent the three of us are parents isn't you have to be a doctor you have to be an engineer you have to be a lawyer it's you need to do something you need to work hard and you need to f- find Ikigami and explain that point. Yeah. What, what do you love? What are you good at? What is the world willing to pay you for? Right? Literally, right. it's the intersection of those three things. And teaching our kids that. Because then it's like, oh, okay, I do need to have grit. I can't just because there are tons of kids who oh, yeah. don't have I mean, models. don't 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 get me wrong. I'm not saying that like you have to like quit and not work hard. Yeah. I think like the thing that you're pivoting to, like for me. This I would say this like this has been the hardest couple of years of my life. It's been the best and the most growth. But like the easier thing would be for me to have stayed as a lawyer. It wouldn't have been fun or it wouldn't have been a growth opportunity. But I had the degree. I was getting the income. I could just show up every day and do the work and get the money. Right. And so it's like I, I don't in any way. And the people I think like that 
push against what everybody in their family or in their lives want them to do, the amount of resilience that that takes. And I think the grit of like building a business, a hundred percent, like you have to work extremely hard. And I think for my kids, that's very much what I would want to instill in them is that like, none of this stuff comes easy. And like, it's not supposed to, right? There's no life where like people don't have problems or people don't have like hardships. It's like, this is part of what it is. So how do you become resilient in the face of that? And how do you keep choosing and rechoosing the things that you want and not what other people want for you? Does that take a lot of stamina and courage and stuff? Of course. I just think that it's not Oftentimes we we associate this hard work and stuff with doing things that you hate. And I just don't think that it has to be that way. Like you can work really hard for something that you love. Definitely. I almost feel like the harder you work, the more you appreciate doing what you love. Would you agree with that? Oh my God. Yeah. So it's so funny. I've shared this story a couple of times on the podcast, but I always talk about how my brave husband once when I was in the beginning just ruminating over this, like, should I leave or should I stay? And he, we were having a discussion and he was, he turned around and said something to me about like trying something new. And he said, you've always taken the easy path. And I remember like this like blind rage coming over me. Like I literally was going to flip over the table. I got out of the way when you said that. I stuck for my microphone. I know. I literally was like, are you kidding me? I was like, started yelling. Like, and when I calmed down enough to listen to what the poor man was trying to say, I think he he was hundred percent right in the sense that he was saying, you took the path that was always laid out for you. So you didn't have to think about what the next step was. You didn't have to decide. You just like did what someone told you to and do. do yeah. And, and you just did the work and you got there, but you never like looked up. And Sharon, to your point, I think right now, when I look at like how I my business is growing. Like the pride I feel in it is so much more. It's so much sweeter because I have literally figured out every single brick on my own, brick by brick building this thing. Because every day, I think as you guys know, and like building a business or anything, like carving a new path, when there is no path, like it's very disorienting. And so every day you're like, what should I be working on today? Like, what do I do now? Like somebody, when you're looking for an answer. And so once you start like the, the confidence I now have in relying on myself and relying on my own intuition and decisions and the radical amount of self-compassion I have now where like, I know I'm going to get it wrong and I'm not trying to be perfect anymore. And I'm like, all of that has made this journey so much more sweet than it was even climbing that ladder and becoming a partner. Like that would have felt like, okay, well, somebody told me you work this many years, you do this, you become a partner in a law firm. Right. Whereas like, this is like, Everything is like, feels like this really is my own accomplishment. I totally agree. I feel like as an entrepreneur myself, mm. everything that I've done, whether good or bad is, is my own. And even all of the failures and the disappointments, it's, it's in many ways as meaningful and valuable as the wins. Oh yeah. It's so funny because like, that's the only way to learn, right? Like it's, it's funny that like we, like you've never heard of a person anyone that like started a business and never had one problem. Everything went perfectly right. It's like, obviously that doesn't exist. And yet we're so terrified of like the problems. Like we're so scared of running into anything. But like you were just saying, I mean, I think realizing that like failure is just there to help you learn. It's like with each step. So uh, there's a quote, I think, like, I don't know who originally said it, but I hear James Wedmore say it all the time where 
you either get the result you want or you get the lesson you needed. And so it's like you just take these steps and you fail along the way and you learn and you pivot. And if you don't attach a meaning to it as like you're a failure or you're not smart enough or whatever, you can just keep it moving and you learn so much more. What would you tell your younger self? Oh, so many things. <laughs> I would tell my younger self a couple of things, actually. One is to just like slow down and enjoy it. Like it goes so fast. It'll be fine. You don't have to have everything figured out right now. Like just take the time to enjoy that stage that you're in. Because I think so much of my younger life was going to the next thing and the next rung on the ladder and trying to, and I think I missed out on a lot of my young adult life because of that. But I think bigger than that is just this idea to like, as hard as it is, like try to listen to yourself, like drown out all the noise and listen to yourself. Like what is it that you want? What is it? Who is it that you are? What are the things that bring you happiness? Like listen to that voice more, cultivate that voice and follow that instead of always looking for somebody else to tell you who you should be or what you should do. So I want to come back to culture. What's your relationship been with your heritage, clearly having feet in both worlds, Iranian and American, and how's that affected the personal choices you've been making as you've gotten older? Yeah, so it's funny. So just a backstory. I think a lot of people from immigrant, I mean, I think any culture, any people will will resonate with this. You guys can tell me if I'm wrong. There's such a love-hate relationship with your own culture, right? Because there's so much... Like there's so much that you're proud of. There's so much that you love. There's so much that's in an inextricably in you that like is just in your bloodline. But then obviously because the stereotypes are things like that. I mean, just, there's just so much of the negative that you see and it's like, and because maybe you get associated with it or whatnot, it's like you want to push against that part of the culture. And so I think growing up in, I grew up in Southern California, which has a very, it was one of the largest Iranian diasporas in America. And so I grew up with a lot around a lot of Iranian American people and with just like any culture obviously there's the good and there's the bad there's people you resonate with and people you don't but I think growing up there was just these there was just things that I was like so fed up with the Iranian culture and so I was very much rebellious against it and wanted to get away and I realized later like that was my own ignorance but so I would always tell my mom because like I would see all these Iranian guys in college and I was like oh my god I could never never I'm never going to marry an Iranian guy and then I met my husband and I was I was an undergrad I was finishing up my undergrad degree at in Irvine in Orange County and he was getting his master's at UCLA and we met through friends and he had grown up in Arizona and he wasn't, he never grew up around a lot of Iranian people. And so I don't know if it was that. And like, it was just, he was just very different from anybody I'd, I had met. And we just clicked very instantly. And I mean, as they say, like the rest is history. It was like, I think what we met 16 years ago. And so I, I don't know, I found love and I, and I retracted my words quickly. <laughs> Were your parents really happy when that happened and you brought him home? Were they relieved that you had chosen someone within your own culture? Yeah, I think for me, it was a little bit, not to say that my parents maybe didn't want me to marry an Iranian guy. They did, but I had, we had a lot of interracial marriage in my family. My sister married an American guy. Like I had it, my uncles and aunts. And so it wasn't so unheard of. So I, I don't know if I necessarily, I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe I didn't think about it, but I wasn't, it wasn't like a, I could never bring somebody that's not Iranian home. Yeah. 
vibe. So I didn't have that level of fear in that. And so, but I, I, I do think that even for my parents, even for me, honestly, like marrying an Iranian guy did make certain things easier because he just understood the culture. Right. So it was like certain things that even talking. And I think maybe if I married another immigrant, maybe it would have been the same, but like we were just talking about like this need to still have like parental acceptance, even as an adult. Right. It's like, I think sometimes maybe people are, of different cultures may not understand that, or there might be, there's just obviously language barriers and stuff. So it made certain things a lot smoother, the fact that he was Iranian. But I don't think I ever had the, I can't marry someone that's not Iranian. Well, I think there's a, when you, and Sharon and I are, and Sharon's not married to a Chinese guy, I'm not married to an Indian girl. But when you go into a relationship with someone not of your culture, especially when you're thinking about settling down and having kids and all these things, you do go into it knowing that, wow, there's going to be stuff we just have to explain to each other and you've got to be ready for it. Yeah. And I, as a kid, I had this one childhood friend who's Indian buddy whose dad married an American woman and didn't know till later on in life all of the struggles that culturally he mm-hmm. was going to have with it and they wound up getting divorced. But it's like, you have to know what you're going in for. But then on the flip side of the argument, both my sister and I married non-Indian people. The conversation with our parents and you know, parents pretty liberal, had pretty decent, they want it, they would have preferred an Indian person, but they're fine. Mm -hmm. But it's the articulation, the framing of the parents is this person has the same values, right? Like, yeah, it's all about knowing what your deal breakers and what your values are more than the culture thing. Uh, And to be fair, a lot of that could be baked into culture, or to your point of the love hate relationship with the culture, in some in some cases, (laughs) the culture or parts of the culture, I could say represent things you might not value. And uh, yeah, I, re- I really, because it's not about, oh, are you the same or are you different? Values should be aligned. Right. Like values and deal breakers should absolutely be aligned. And then absolutely, you need to know what you're getting into if you're going to break from the culture. Because there is, and like literally we're dividing up the holidays. Like should we spend a lot of time on Chinese right. food or Diwali? Like right. are we eating too much Chinese food at home or too much Indian food or too much mac and cheese? <laughs> Right. Yeah. I think that, I mean, with anything, obviously, like if your values don't align or just because you're the same culture, if you don't have the same values, because again, within cultures, there's such a wide spectrum. And like I was just saying, like, do you come from a religious family or not religious family? Do you come from, and so there's so much. And so that's just a baseline. Like, yes, I do think that me and my husband may not have to have certain conversations because we're just on the same page because we came from like our cultures are very similar and our families are very similar within that culture. So it it sort of makes it like we understand what we're going to do. But yeah, I I, I agree with you. I think it's just a matter of like making sure that your values are the same. And when each person is respectful of the other person's culture and and wanting to understand the other person's culture, then it could be a really beautiful thing. It's just a matter of like, there's going to be different challenges, I think in both. So we Covered a lot of bases. I only have a few minutes left. We want to do something called speed round. What do you think, Sharon? Think we're ready? Yeah, I think she's ready for speed rounds. <laughs> Let's do it. Goalie, what's one thing about you that nobody expects? Oh my God. You guys really went for it. Speed rounds really just to like uh, surprise you. It, it's, this is not fun. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that's really hard because I don't think like nobody knows. I don't. Most people. Most people. Oh. I used to be on a hip hop dance team. What? Yeah, what's up? <laughs> is that like on In Living Color or the Jacksonville Dance Crew from The Good Place? Not professionally, but like in, in yeah, in college, like collegiate, like those dance competitions and stuff that they have at colleges. 
That is so rad. <laughs> Can you recommend a, a book or a movie or even a TV show that has characters you relate to? God, you guys are really like stumping me right now. I, like that I relate to. I have so many, but I just... What's what's a story like... I know nothing about the Iranian-American experience. Mm. What's something that you saw like, oh man, all my non-Iranian friends need to totally see this? See, I don't, I don't know if I have that. That's what I'm trying to think of because like... I have the opposite where it's like I hate certain portrayals of Iranian Americans or okay. things like that. But I'm trying to think of like anybody that's nailed that experience. And and I think there's, you know, definitely TV shows and stuff that are now getting better at, at nailing like the immigrant experience. And so much of the immigrant experience is similar. But I don't really know one of Iranian Americans. And to be completely honest, like this is just maybe the worst question for me because I, I just don't, I don't know how many years it's been since I've watched TV or I don't really watch movies that much. So like I don't. You guys, this is the worst question for me. I'm sorry. What about a book that encapsulates your philosophy? Uh, okay. Well, how about this? Yeah, a book that encapsulates my philosophy, but just I also think is just such an incredible book for everybody to read yeah. is Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic. And I'll tell you why. Like, I think it might be surprising, and you, I didn't even think I would love it as much as I love it, and I read it every single year. It's just such a beautiful, fundamental way to live your life. It's so simple and takes off so much of the pressure that we put on ourselves. And I think if you can learn to look at your life and your work and just approaching fear and any of it, it's just a beautiful, beautiful approach. So I would highly recommend. And I feel like that is my philosophy behind the podcast, behind everything I'm doing is like encapsulated in big magic. Rad, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. What's your favorite mom dish? And food. Oh, there's a a chicken stew in Persian um, cuisine that's chicken with eggplants with rice. It's the most delicious. And I will. What's it called? It's called Khoreshte Badamjun. Khoresh means stew, and Badamjun means eggplant. But there's also chicken in it. It's just the most delicious. Yum! That sounds really delicious. What's your least favorite food? Iranian food or just, I guess I would say, yeah, I can't do, Iranians love this thing called kallepache, which is a like breakfast supposedly delicacy. And it's literally, it's kallepache means from head to toe. And it's literally the most disgusting parts of a cow. And like literally like tongue and brains. I can't do it. I can't. (laughs) It sounds like it's packed with protein and culture. Yeah. I mean, people are, Iranians are going to be so mad that I'm saying this because they, Love them some Gala budget. I, I love the description. The name is awesome, though. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> on, on the nose, no pun intended. Like, yeah, exactly. I'm traumatized from like watching my mom cook Gala budget. Let's just say that. Who is somebody out there that you'd want to interview for a podcast? Oh, so many. I mean, obviously, like the big ones that everybody is going to name, like Michelle Obama and Oprah. Like, who wouldn't want to? Yeah, but, but Michelle, Michelle's ruining the podcast game for the rest of us right now. I know. <laughs> Michelle, come on. Not cool. <laughs> How are we supposed to compete? But I will, I, I will let her talk as much as she wants because I love hearing from her. But I have like for my own podcast, like I definitely have a list of dream guests. And at the top of it, which is like, this might be a total random person that you would think, but I would love to interview Dr. Ken, who was a medical doctor and then went on to do like the hangover and all those. Oh, uh, Ken Jong. Ken Jong. Yeah, Ken Jong. 
because like it's just such an interesting like and I think it plays on a lot of what you guys talk about too is I think as an immigrant to actually be a practicing doctor and then to go and then to go so extreme where it's like you're showing yourself full frontal naked on a movie it's like I just there's so many questions I have about his family and how we got to that point. So that would be a definite top one for me. Again, speaking of people ruining it for the rest of us, him <laughs> and Joel McHale have the Darkest Timeline podcast. So, I know. you know, it's just not right. I know, I know. They've taken over. That's the thing is podcasting has now become very mainstream. So it's all the Hollywood people coming in. Last question. What does being a modern minority mean to you? Hmm. I think showing up as your full self and being your full self outside of anybody else's expectation of what you're supposed to do or what you're, you should be doing or what is seen as good and successful and right and whatever it is, is getting really true to who you are and showing up day in and day out as that person, whether people like it or not. That's a great answer. Thank you. So Goli, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you just sharing, opening up and honestly continue to share and open up every week on your own show. So I know we'll be friends long after this conversation and look forward to hearing more from you. Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us, Goli. It was great to have you. Thank you guys so much. What you're doing is so important and I'm so honored that you wanted me to be on the show and I really appreciate you guys having such thought-provoking conversations. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. I ran into a very good friend of mine and she said, I was freelancing for this company for over a year and they told me they would make my job permanent. And when she asked them to consider her for the role, her boss looked at her and she was pregnant at the time. He said, well, look at you, we can't hire you. And I think that story coupled with my own experiences and seeing how women, particularly in lower wage jobs, experience the workplace was the final motivator for me to say, we've got to do something. Why are we still talking about this? Why is this still such a challenge? That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.